The holiday weekend is not starting off great, but by the end of it, it's supposed to be the beginning of summer. I hope everybody has a wonderful holiday weekend. It's This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Layla Tassi, Jane Cahoon, and Laura Johnston. Happy Friday. Happy Memorial Day weekend. I hope you are all cheerful and ready to dash into the beginning of summer. Absolutely. When can we get off work today? (laughs) (laughs) It's going to be raining all day. Just keep keep it coming because you don't want to go outside. Let us begin. What was Abigail Bugensky doing at the moment Ohio Governor Mike DeWine called her to tell her she won the first Vaximillion drawing for a million dollars? Jane Cahoon, this was like the perfect thing for Mike DeWine. You couldn't have had a better example of the first winner. Can I just first say something? Yesterday morning, now let's be honest, we were jaded journalists. We're we're kind of grumbling about how we're already kind of tired of this Vaximillion story. And and certainly there's a level of fatigue with, with Mike DeWine briefings. But I thought this news conference with the winners was just delightful. They were so engaging and happy with big smiles. And I just totally got sucked in by this. I'm just going to put that out there. Okay. But you asked about Abigail Bogensky. Um, Even though she lives near Cincinnati, she's actually from Shaker Heights, which we were really happy to find out. And then um, when she, what she was doing, she was driving to Shaker Heights, in fact, from the Cincinnati area to visit her parents and to look at a used car she was interested in in buying. And that's when Mike DeWine called her. She she said, you know, afterwards she was just screaming and and her parents thought she was crying and that something was wrong. But, you know, and then she started yelling. She won the million dollars. And so they had to kind of like calm her down. And she said they grounded me a bit. But um, anyway, she's 22 and a Shaker Heights High School graduate. And she's now a mechanical engineer and works for GE aviation. She said she has no plans to quit her job, which she says she loves. She she wants to give some of the money to charity and invest some of it. And she still says she thinks a used car is in her future. So it was just, as I said, she was really engaging and, and delightful. A couple and then, of things. A couple of things. Yeah, we should yeah. point out she's a Michigan State grad, as are my of children. Course, of and course. And I, I think we could all bet that as she starts to look at used cars and looks at her bank account balance, I'm betting she she might come off of that position in the end. <laughs> might get something a little newer. You the know. new car smell just beckons. <laughs> it's not really a good time to, to buy a car right now. I mean, as far as finding one and uh, getting a good deal, I think. But, you know, I, I, maybe that's not so important to her, you know. But uh, anyway, the uh, winner of the college scholarship was a 14-year-old kid named Joseph Costello, who appeared with his parents. You know, they're from the uh, Dayton area. And his, his mom, Colleen Costello, was the one who signed up the family. And she got the call from DeWine as she was leaving her job as a chemical engineer. And it was funny. She said she thought it was like a recorded message from DeWine. And and soon she realized it was actually him on, on wow. the other end of the line. <laughs> and uh, so then she called her husband, uh, Rich Costello, who's a teacher. And he was at a coffee shop doing schoolwork. And, and she said, you know, are you sitting down? And then so Rich picked up Joseph from this youth group and they didn't tell him they kept it a surprise until they got home. And then DeWine and First Lady Fran DeWine, you know, they don't live too far from there. So they came and visited them at their home that night and they were all 
out there like mingling with the neighbors and celebrating and and um joseph was a little bit shy you know during this briefing but he said he's um he's interested in maybe miami university and ohio state so um and of course you know they all stress the importance of being vaccinated. So as as I said it, or as you said, this news conference was like a dream for Mike DeWine. It just couldn't have been a better, you know, uh, just a better group of people, I think. Well, and it'll be interesting to see if even more people sign up. I, I just keep going back to, to Abigail, 22, driving home, phone rings. One, you answer it and it's a strange number and it's the governor on the phone. I mean, I've, the governor's <laughs> actually called me in my job a couple of times and it's, it's been unusual. Just, but here's a 22 year old kid. You can all, we can all remember what it's like to be 22 driving in our beater cars to go somewhere. And all of a sudden you're talking into the governor who's telling you, you're now have one million dollars. <laughs> and it's funny that, you know, he chose to be the one to, to let them know, which was just, you know, you can't deny him that pleasure uh, to be the, um, you know, like the publisher's clearinghouse guy or whatever. Well, you know? you know, he got scorned a bit when he announced this, like, oh, this is cheesy. Now state after state is copying it because it has proven to be a brilliant idea. It is getting people vaccinated. That was the goal. Let's get more people vaccinated. Let's protect people. And he came up with the winning idea. Actually, it wasn't his idea. He finally did give up that it came from a staff member who said, yeah, this yeah. may sound wacky, but, and you know, whenever, whenever anybody launches an idea with this may sound wacky, but you really should listen. You got to listen. Yeah. Yeah. It, it could be, it could be a great, that one. was Ann O'Donnell, uh, one of his aides. So let's give her uh, a shout out for that. Yeah. When he was originally asked, he said, no, the buck stops with me. It was me, but he finally has given credit where credit is due. Good ideas. It's uh, we'll have to see who wins the next four drawings. You're listening to this week in the CLE. We don't have the list yet, but what have we learned about how the huge stimulus package will be distributed to Ohio's smaller municipalities like suburbs and villages? Leila Tassi, this is, you know, life-changing money that everybody's getting. Uh, we know what the big cities are getting, the counties are getting, the state is getting, but all of the little municipalities in Ohio are getting a big chunk of change, too. What did we learn about that? Well, you're right. We still don't have that list of how much those smaller communities are going to receive. But, you know, the bigger cities, they're getting paid directly from the feds. Those are the cities that receive community development block grant funding. And, and how much they receive from the stimulus is based on that CDBG funding formula. But the smaller cities and villages that don't get that money and have fewer than 50,000 people, they'll get stimulus uh, money from the state. The state is responsible for dividing up a pot of $843 million proportional to the population of those smaller towns. The question, though, is whether townships are eligible for any of it. Reporter Robin Goist, who is heading up our Stimulus Watch project, discovered that Ohio is one of eight states determined to have so-called weak townships. That means that these towns don't typically provide all the services that a city would. They still play a governmental role, but it's a it's a weak one. So for each township, Ohio's Office of Budget and Management will take into account that township's leadership structure, size and budget and decide whether it provides services that could benefit from stimulus funds. We're not sure when those decisions are going to be made or, or when those towns will get their money, but August 31st is the state's first reporting deadline to the Treasury. So we're presuming that the decisions will, will be by then. Money is already flowing into the bigger cities. So I'm sure that, that the smaller cities are, 
are getting antsy and and want to make their plans. We also know that the money these towns do receive over two years can't exceed 75% of a municipality's annual budget. That's a lot, though. <laughs> that's that's quite a bit. That, like you said, is transformational money. This has just been really fascinating stuff so far as Robin peels back the layers of the onion on the stimulus program. Readers should stay tuned for her next installments. She's busy crunching numbers and coming up with a, a projection for how that $843 million could be distributed uh, using that population formula. Well, and, and all of those suburbs and villages that are getting the money, that's one of the reasons we launched Stimulus Watch. There's just too many pots of money that are showing up that are could be transformational and could be squandered. That's the whole purpose of Stimulus mm-hmm. Watch. We'll look for Robin's next pieces. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. It's the eve of Memorial Day weekend, the eve of summer when people do all of their traveling. So are we getting any closer to the opening of the U.S.-Canada border so that Laura Johnston can spend a week at her family cabin? Laura, Susan Glaser did a story on this that made clear there are a bunch of people that are reaching the point of annoyance that you've reached at the, at the closure of this border. What's going on? Yeah, there is no answer for this. We don't know. And every month since March 2020, you know, they've announced, okay, we're we're closing, keeping the border closed for another month. So there's been never any long-term plan for this. It's just month to month, we're still closed. So there's no plan to reopen. Um, and C- Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has said he won't consider reopening the border until 75% of the ca- country is vaccinated. Think about it right now. Just about 50% of the country has received one dose of the vaccine, but they've spread it out so they can get more shots and more arms. So about 5% are fully vaccinated and people are waiting four months in between their doses of Pfizer and Moderna. So Susan did a very comprehensive story. She talked to a professor at the University of Buffalo, who is an expert in U.S.-Canada relations. She said it's not going to happen all at once. They're not just going to like throw open the gates and say, come on in, everybody. She thinks Americans with family or property in Canada will be able to enter first. And she's not sure when tourists would be able to. Um, Actually, Jane Cahoon sent me a story this morning that looked a little more optimistic, saying that the folks in Trudeau's own Liberal Party are saying you have to come up with a plan, especially looking toward Canada Day on July 1st and the 4th of July, that we really need to think about having a plan in place that we can at least tell people this is how we will open. The thing is that until very, very recently, Ontario has been on lockdown for a month. Like my cousin's kids couldn't go to school buildings. They weren't even allowed to play tennis. So I just don't think we were high on their radar. I, I, I just, it makes me wonder about the people of Canada. We know they're all friendly and peace loving and cheerful because <laughs> we work with you, but, but I'm surprised they're taking this. I mean, can you imagine if this were happening in this country? I mean, we had people go bazonkers because they had to wear a mask and, and here's an c- entire country that's just, shut down. Commerce has brought, been brought to a standstill. I would think that political forces would start to be in play here where Trudeau might face trouble and not maintain his job. I mean, in the United States, politicians have been under constant criticism for the decisions they're making, and they made good decisions. This seems like bad decision making. Where is the outrage by your fellow Canadians? There is some outrage. I've seen some protests um, where people were walking around in defiance of the gathering orders and people walking around maskless. I have some relatives that did it. Um, I have also relatives that are very much like stay home and be safe. So I also think that we 
Canada kept it under control a lot more than we did. Um, they never got the same numbers that we saw. And maybe because of that, they never saw as many people get sick. And they've just been sheltering at home. So every time they open up stuff, like everybody, you know, the numbers shoot up again. So they've had a lot more spikes. It hasn't been very gradual. But I do think you're starting to see this pushback, especially, you know, as the world gets vaccinated and the weather gets warm and people are looking at another summer where they're like, I don't I don't want to have to stay home all the time. Well, and how much is what is the value of the American tourism to the Canadian economy? They lost it for all of last year. Are they willing to lose it again? We'll have to see. I hope uh, hope things change soon. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why is Ohio shutting down its color-coded county coronavirus alert map? Jane Cahoon, I thought this was a stupid idea when they first invented it, so I'm not unhappy to see it go. But what is the reasoning for why it's going? We're still still dealing with the pandemic. It's not like everybody is safe. Right. I, I was hoping you would kind of say that so I wouldn't have to. About, <laughs> about it. I think what you said yesterday, Chris, was that, you know, Vaximilian was a good idea. Uh, alert system may maybe not so good, but well, no, uh, no. I, I said I compared it to matter and antimatter. That in the universe <laughs> there is balance. So if Vaximilian is this brilliant, great idea that Dewine had, the counter for it was the idiotic county alert map. <laughs> you could definitely make the case that it wasn't all that useful. So. Uh, just to set the stage here, under this system, it began last July, and it, and it was called the Ohio Public Health Advisory System. So each week, the health department would put out this color-coded map showing the level of coronavirus concern in each county, yellow, orange, red, and purple, which was the worst, which which happened a few times. And the, these colors were based on a bunch of different factors, including cases per 100,000 residents, emergency room visits, doctor visits, hospitalizations, et cetera. And if a county stayed bad, according to those metrics for a certain time period, they kind of got stuck, you know, in the red for a while. But, but, you know, when the virus surged, pretty much everybody was red. So, it was bad everywhere, and you really didn't need a map to, to tell you that. But now, uh, it, this is how they explain the change. The health director, Stephanie McLeod, said, we're in a different place. The, the health orders are being lifted next week, except for those in nursing homes and assisted living facilities. You know, the cases are down. There's there's not as much urgency, and we're more focused on vaccination numbers than these other metrics. So, but they did say if God forbid cases go up again, they're they'll consider instituting another alert system, but but probably something different because they did get pushback on this one. For now, they're still going to provide county level data on these cases per 100,000, uh, which was uh, on Thursday it was 82.3 cases per 100,000. Last week it was 97.1. So it's continued to to go down in recent weeks. See, my theory about when they created this was that DeWine was starting to buckle to pressure from the right side of his party to, to reopening things in the state. It was June of uh, getting some criticism. So he created this as like the bright, shiny thing to divert everybody's attention. <laughs> and it kind of worked because nobody could figure out how it worked. It was like, well, what, what, why is somebody on the verge of being purple? Why, it, and the metrics that he picked were so confusing that nobody quite got it, but everybody 
was on edge. And then all the school districts based their decisions on whether we were red or orange. So when counties were shifting from orange to red, you saw school districts going with at-home schooling instead of in-class schooling. It, it was a convoluted thing, but it, yeah. I think it served his purpose to make us it was misdirection. Don't don't look at what yeah. I'm doing over here. Look over there. <laughs> Purple, red, orange. And Yeah, uh, and then when you know, the you talked about the school districts like sometimes, you know, well they'd be orange and then they'd be red and then they'd go back to orange. You know, it really kind of the school districts were really like trying to scramble based on this. I think when the book is written about how to deal with a pandemic, this what he did with this will be written about as the as the misdirection step. If you want to keep people focused on something that doesn't matter, do something confusing like this and they'll look away because that was its main purpose. <laughs> we don't need that anymore. Uh, so we're shutting it down. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What was the Cleveland Landmarks Commission's reasoning for rejecting the arguments of the neighborhood and approving a 12-unit apartment building on Hessler Street, home of the eclectic Hessler Street Fair? Leila Tassi, you can almost pull Hessler Street right out of San Francisco in the 60s. It's a <laughs> bunch of hippies that are very proud of their heritage, <laughs> and they're not happy with how this ended up, even though they got some concessions. Yeah, that's right. So the Cleveland Landmarks Commission voted 7-2 to to greenlight this apartment building. It's three stories, 12 micro apartment units where tenants could presumably move walls and structures to change the configuration of the space. And these will be market rate apartments that the developers hope will appeal to Case Western students. But Hessler residents who have objected to this plan argue that the project changes the feel of the neighborhood. As you said, Chris, this is the home of, of the historic Hessler Street Fair. The street is made of beautiful brick pavers. The houses are really tightly packed and, and it feels a lot more like a street in San Francisco than one in Cleveland. Also, the site is the current location of a garage that the local community development corporation has used for storage of materials related to the Hessler Street Fair, which has been on hiatus since 2019. And that garage space has become kind of a museum to the fair, according to our reporter, Eric Heisig. And so residents wanted to preserve that garage, too. But generally, they disapprove of the aesthetic of the building, which has an enormous footprint compared to the surrounding structures. And they're worried that their already rising property values will continue to go up with the addition of this housing. City planning director Freddie Collier and the councilman for the neighborhood Blaine Griffin both have lent their support to the project. But inter And interestingly, University Circle Inc. Incorporated President Chris Ronane called out the detractors for being kind of elitist and exclusionary in their objection to this project. The Hessler street vibe. Yeah. He said residents on the street consider themselves to be the quote, real residents of Hessler and that they're not welcoming or accepting of outsiders, particularly students from all over the world. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so this is, um, it looks like this is going to move forward and, and could potentially change the, change the the vibe of that street that's been uh, kind of, you know, historic in, in its uh, nature for so long. 
Yeah, with university circles success over the past decade and more, more you know, more and more people want to live there. The the value of housing there has gone up. So we keep seeing these neighborhood battles where the old guard fights the new guard, and the the councilman has to figure out a way to navigate. This is the latest example, but it's the first that was on Hessler Street. A, a real microcosm kind of thing about development in in the face of history. Eric Isaac did a nice job on it. Check it out mm -hmm. on cleveland.com. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Is arranging for travel getting more difficult now that people are emerging from their pandemic cocoons? What about running a rec center pavilion and other things for summer fun? Laura Johnston, we've had a series of stories that look at this. And if people want to do these things, they better move fast. Yeah, they better book now and they better not be looking for deals because I don't really think they're going to find them. But leisure travel demand is surging. There's a survey that Susan Glaser wrote about that found 89% of American travelers were planning a trip for the next six months. That's the highest percentage since March 2020 when the world shut down. But it's getting so pricey that the cost of airfare, rental cars, the hotel, and gas are actually more of a concern to people than catching COVID at this point. So think about six months ago, complete reverse. But uh, passengers are up at the airport, and gas is the highest that we've seen since 2014. And if you just want to stay home and like book a Metro Parks pavilion, well, you better act fast because those pavilions are booked for a lot of 2021 already. So people really are breaking out. This is the summer where we get back to being who we are, getting together with family, getting together with friends, having some recreation and Memorial Day weekend. It's the eve of it. So are you all planning to do things like that? I booked a trip to Ohio Pile in Pennsylvania um, to do some rafting in July. So we'll see how that goes. I guess um, domestic trips, this still makes sense, right? That people want to drive and go somewhere domestically. Although I guess Hawaii is huge. I don't think any of us are planning to go to Hawaii this year. At least none of these, Layla, these editors. <laughs> Layla, Jane, are you, do you have summer plans to travel at all? Well, I have a one-year-old. So I, I just, when I think about that, I, I just mentally shut down i i don't i don't want to go anywhere with a one-year-old in the backyard <laughs> i haven't booked anything yet but uh i believe seth richardson our politics reporter is planning to go to hawaii later this year and i think he he's already booked that i'm pretty sure yeah oh, cool. i think i think he did and um so i guess there'll be lots of people in hawaii apparently the biggest um jumps in the occupancy rates for hotels, which are actually not quite at 2019 levels yet, are Tampa, Miami, and Norfolk slash Virginia Beach, which I wouldn't have picked that one, but wow. people like to go where it's warm and where there's water. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Is the Wolstein Mass Vaccination Clinic shutting down and what happens to the people who get their first shot there in the final week? Jane Cahoon, I think many of us are going to have long-lasting fond memories of the Wolstein Center it, because it is where we got our deliverance from the COVID-19 <laughs> pandemic. And it, it's with a little sadness that you think about it going away. Yeah, and all the nice people there uh, who worked at this FEMA-supported clinic it's uh, heading into its final days. It, its last day of operation will be June 7th. And from now until then, it's offering the Pfizer vaccine, which, as we know, requires 
two doses a few weeks apart. So anybody who gets this first dose at this point is going to be scheduled for a second one at an area discount drug mart. So they won't just leave those people hanging. Uh, Governor Mike DeWine said the, the clinic is offering Pfizer because it's the only vaccine right now that's approved for children age, um, you know, 12 and up, and up. And they're really working to get that age group vaccinated. So, um, and then looking back, you know, this began March 17th. Uh, I was there with, the first day. Yeah. Yeah. With the idea of being open, you know, for eight weeks, but they ended up extending it by four, four more weeks. They've administered nearly 255,000 doses uh, during the first 10 weeks. And they're still accepting walk-ins seven days a week from 8 a.m. to 7 p.m. And they and you can still book your appointment online if you'd rather have an, a, an appointment. Well, you nailed it when you said that, about how friendly it is. I mean, I think everybody that went down there, you know, it's nervous days, right? It's COVID, the pandemic, you're trying to avoid it. And you go into that place and the military folks, everybody, it, it just warm and friendly, efficient. You're in and out in 15 minutes. It was one of the highlights of how government dealt with the pandemic and you know Layla and Laura you both got your vaccinations there as well I think you have the same feeling for the place mm-hmm. absolutely absolutely I, it was funny just thinking that wasn't that long ago what are we talking like barely it wasn't even I guess two months that I got mine um and it felt like a completely different world right and it, the fact that they were opening up and just allowing you to come in and um, get your vaccine and everybody was so nice and they you know it feels like a different world. And um, I think that will be imprinted in a lot of our memories as just this like out of body experience almost. Yeah. I'll never forget that image is engraved on my mind as much as it is on my little laminated card saying I'm free. (laughs) You're listening to this week in the CLE. Are federal inmates who have been held in a private prison near Youngstown going to get to stay there after all, or are they still going to be shipped off to Pennsylvania where it will be much harder for their lawyers and relatives to visit with them? Leila Tassi, we talked about this a few weeks back, but there's a big development. There is. They they are going to get to stay in Youngstown. Uh, Reporter John Coniglia reports that the Northeast Ohio Correctional Facility which is owned by private corrections company Core Civic, will continue to house federal inmates through a compromise with the Mahoning County Sheriff's Department. This issue, as you said, Chris, stems from President Biden's order to stop federal contracts with private prison companies. The president doesn't believe that private companies should profit from mass incarceration. So CoreCivic had contracted with the U.S. Marshal Service since the early 2000s, but that contract expired in March and it was extended to the end of this month. After that, it was it was looking like those 350 inmates were going to be shipped off to a federal facility in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, but that's more than five hours away. That would have made it more difficult for family to visit them from Ohio and also for their lawyers to visit them and provide them the high-quality legal defense that they're entitled to. So the marshals couldn't sidestep Biden's order. So it appeared the move was certainly going to happen for these these hundreds of inmates until Mahoning County Sheriff Jerry Green stepped in. Green was worried about losing jobs in the region. And at first he offered a plan to lease a section of Core Civics facility and let his corrections officers monitor the inmates. But that fell apart. Then Green sought for his office to contract with Core Civic to monitor the inmates. So the marshals would then reimburse Green's office the cost of the agreement. Um, that deal was finalized this week. So basically, instead of paying Core Civic, the marshals are paying Green's office to pay the company. 
U.S. Marshal Pete Elliott told John that officials worked with the White House and Justice Department to get this deal done. But, you know, this is what I'm wondering. It actually seems like the deal subverts the purpose of Biden's yeah, order, right? And, and now, this, am I wrong? I mean, Biden doesn't yeah, want the federal government to contract with these prisons because he doesn't think that the, they should profit off mass incarceration. And he's right about that. So isn't this just are. a workaround? Right. It's <laughs> I mean, a, it's this one where the ends justify the means, I right. guess. But this flies in the face of his policy. That was Absolutely. my reaction, too. It's like this is bogus, except that it's helping these inmates out as yeah. long as the treatment in the private prison is not substandard. So yeah, the, I, I'm right with you. The federal government is still supporting the privatization of mass incarceration just indirectly. So yeah, <laughs> I know it's completely bogus and shame on the Biden administration for doing it because they should stick to their guns, follow their policy. It's not right to do things like this. It's what does it teach you? What is it? What does it teach anybody? Oh, if we don't like a rule that comes from the federal government, let's do some sleazy work around to get what we want that that's really right, what the right. upshot of this is so okay that's a good one you're listening to this week in this cle all right we're almost at the end of the school year so what did people have to say about northeast ohio teachers when we asked them for tributes or johnston this was your idea you thought you know teachers were on the front lines this whole this whole pandemic trying to get our kids through it in the most challenging circumstances possible. People really came to appreciate their teachers. We asked them to tell us what their thoughts were. What did they say? Yeah, there were just a lot of people that thanked the teachers for for teaching their kids and, and making the best of such a weird time in their lives. For teaching in person all year, a few people said that, you know, for schools that were able to start five days a week and stay all year, or for managing a new ways to do treasured traditions. Some teachers delivered work to students' home. There were props for a virtual choir performance or for staying after class on Zoom just to answer questions. Basically just staying positive, encouraging kids, and keeping school as normal as possible for these children. If I mean, as we near the end of the school year, it feels pretty normal at this point. But Think back to where we were in August, and we had no idea of how this was going to work. We didn't know if kids were going to be spreading it or if they could keep their masks on or what hybrid would mean and and remote. And and you think about the uncertainty that these teachers dealt with after a last spring of literally kids were just on their own on a laptop and my kids just watched way too much YouTube. I mean, the fact that we've gotten to this point is remarkable, and I don't think parents will ever take school for granted again. They might not like the way it was handled and therefore they're much more involved with their school boards now, but none of us will just be like, yeah, it's just school. I mean, like, thank you. Thank you for taking my kids every day. (laughs) (laughs) So when, when will people be able to see this? This is up. This is online now. We have, and it'll be on in our Metro section on Sunday in the Plain Dealer. But Brenda Kane put these together. It's quite a lot of words. You can scroll down and see people, the people who nominated their teachers, the teachers' names, and their own words thanking them. Very cool. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. That wraps up the week, wraps up the winter. We're heading into summer. I want to thank Layla, Jane, and Laura for participating in this podcast. I say that every episode, but I hope you know how much I mean it. I think it's a privilege I get to have conversations with you to start each news day. It's really kind of a wonderful thing. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. We will be back on Tuesday. No episode on Monday.